Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where various people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they still had preserved in a time capsule. And as if by magic, we take those things and put them in a time capsule for them. Well, that's what we say. Each guest picks four things from their life that they cherish and one they rather regret. And to a large extent, that's what we talk about. My guest in this episode of My Time Capsule is the Australian TV presenter and chef, John Tarode, who has hosted the ever-popular MasterChef, along with Greg Wallace, since 2005. John was born in Melbourne and then moved to the UK in 1991 to work in various top restaurants, including Quaglino's. In 1996, he started cooking on This Morning on ITV, and around this time he opened his restaurant, Smith's of Smithfield, and a second restaurant called Cafeteria near Notting Hill Gate. He's presented programmes on the Good Food Channel and has made John to Rhodes Australia, ten episodes in which he tries to retrace the flavours of his childhood and the people that inspired his passion for food, and some other series about the food of Argentina, Malaysia, Korea, the Middle East and lots of other areas of the world. His latest series is called John to Rhodes Island, which is about half an hour each episode. John is married to Lisa Faulkner, who he talks about in this episode. And we also have a mutual friend who once brought us together a long time ago on a holiday in France. Our friend's name is Bruce and his wife is Sarah, just so you know when we mention them. So let's hear what the delightful John Tarode would like to put in a time capsule. Good morning. Morning, John. How are you? I'm good. How are you, mate? Very good. You may not remember from a long time ago. We went on holiday together once. It's a very long time ago. All I remember is being thrashed by you at pool late at night. That's not good. Yeah, I don't think we were probably in a very good state anyway by then, so it was all right. <laughs> Neither of us. My son, who was now 27, I think there's a picture wow. of him being like one or two, yeah. Yeah. yeah really, oh, my really, God, yeah. it's that long ago. Yeah, it's really that long ago. And then I was talking to Nicola Stevenson, actually, because she was. Yeah. She said that she'd done stuff with you. And then we were talking about Bruce. Is that in... in 
Where is he? Ireland. Ireland. Yeah, yeah. I had a message from the other day, the other day actually, and he was on good form. Um, yeah, yeah, the children all grown up, and he's living in Kinsale, and um, you know they're very happy, so that's good. Yeah, and Sarah's still writing, so well, it's great. Lovely, and Sarah, of course, looks exactly the same as she did all those years ago. Yeah, in fact, so does Bruce. To be fair, Bruce doesn't look any different at all. No, that's true, actually. Yeah. So your show starts tonight, doesn't it? It started last night. Yeah, last it's, night. it's gone down very well. There's been quite a few messages, which I'm really pleased about, which is great. Yeah, I bet. And that was really interesting because the um, the I was working and I'm filming in Kinsale, mm-hmm. and uh, ironically, Bruce's oldest, well, one of Bruce's daughters, the twins, yeah, uh, Anouk's uh, boyfriend, spotted me, <laughs> and that's how I had a message from Bruce. So oh. he said, "Oh, here you're in Kinsale. Are you still here?" And I was, I'd gone by then, which was a real shame. So mm. otherwise, I would have popped around the corner. I didn't realise he was so close. But anyway, if I go out again, I'll go and see him. Yeah, what a great place to travel around, though Ireland. How long were you there for? Uh, we started filming in the middle of August, and then we went all the way through until January. So because of the whole thing with COVID, mm. um, we had to just change the way we worked. Because yeah. usually you go out and you just do a, you know, you do a job and away you go and you sort of do it for four or five, six weeks. Mm. But this way, it was great actually. And, and in a way, it's taught me a lesson about how I'm going to do TV in the future. In what way? In the fact that um, I think that we should spend more time and duck in and out. I mean, what happens when you do blocks is that when you do blocks, you um, you push really hard and you try and get as much into it as you possibly can. Yeah. And by doing what we did, we just we were able to just breathe a little bit, you know, and we went in the end of August. So we sort of started to see the start of the, the harvest and then we saw some farmers and then, you know, went from there and then went right through the middle of winter. And then we sort of saw oysters and various things like that going on. And it was just a very different point of view. And it meant that as production came back and went and, you know, we kept on coming backwards and forwards. We just sort of looked at the way in which the scripts were done and the way in which we looked at what we were doing and, more people got more excited about it because they'd heard we were being over there. And it just, it, it just, the ripple effect meant that we got a far better amount of content. Yeah. Well, it feels very relaxed. I really like them, actually, John. Oh, thanks. What's great about them is exactly what you're talking about. It has this really relaxed feel to it. Yeah, and I think that the thing is the producers and the director who was with me, um, I've worked with before in various guises. But I say, as I say, I think because we had a lot of time to and from with each other mm. and we sort of ducked in and out rather than sort of, and I'm sure that you know from, from working yourself that when you have sort of five or six weeks together, you'd get a little bit stir crazy. Yeah. And and by doing what we did, we we weren't stir crazy at all. We were just really... You know, and and the camera guy was well. Everybody was sort of like really happy to see each other every time we met up again. Yeah, and because I think COVID had been so stressed, we sort of did a block of about four or five days every time, mm. and it was just enough to do and go right. I'm going home now. <laughs> and then then David, who was the producer director, would be saying, "Okay, we well that was great," and he'd give him an idea, and that meant that when we go and find other things, and and you know, we sort of realised that we didn't have to have perfect weather to film that it was all right to have rain, it was all right to be blustery, it was all right to be windy, because that's what Ireland really is. And that was really nice to show the world as it should be shown rather than as a place which is supposed to be ideal. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And you can see that in the conversations you have with people, that actually suddenly you'll switch to a conversation that in a normal interview situation, you wouldn't have that conversation. And you can tell that's because you've spent a little more time there than you would have done. Yeah, and I think also that they allowed that. I mean, instead of Mm. just running in really early in the morning and doing an interview and disappearing and worrying about time and stuff, we were probably only making about, I don't know, probably five minutes of telly a day. 
yeah. which is, you know, is pretty unheard of in those sort of travelogues. Some of those travelogues mm-hmm. you're doing half an hour a day. And so, you know, that for me was the joy as, a, you know, we, we really got to know a lot of people. And then, you know, somebody would say, oh, well, no, you need to go down and see so-and-so down the road because they're, you know, they've got this thing going on. And it meant we could sort of just stop in the car or, or move somewhere else or go somewhere else and do other things. And and the, and the crew stayed behind every so often and did the GVs and did all the other bits and pieces, so they had all the extra bits going on. Mm. So, I, you know, they, they, it was good. It was really good. And because it's Ireland, um, the international market seemed to have picked it up pretty quickly, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, all we need yeah. to do now is get it into the States. And if it gets into the States, then then life changes. Yeah, quite. Indeed. <laughs> but you've done a few, haven't you, over the years? You've been around a number of countries. Yeah. I'm... I thought you were doing it alphabetically because you started with Australia and then you went to Argentina. I thought this is a good idea. <laughs> it would have been a lovely idea. Actually, <laughs> I just read a book some, and I, called Still Life by um, a girl called Sarah Winman. And one of the things that she talks about, that the publican, he has... He dates only in alphabetical order, and by the time the book finishes, he's down to I, which I think is really cool. <laughs> you know, nice, it's just yeah. a brilliant way of doing it. It's really good. <laughs> so, yeah, if we could do country by alphabetical order, that'd be brilliant. That'd mm. be really good. I don't know how many I've done so far. I think I'm up to about 12 or 13, I think, so far. Wow. Um, and I'd like to keep on doing it. And I think this is testimony to the fact that we can do it and we're interested. And I think one of the notes I got this morning was somebody saying, it was just nice because you were actually genuinely interested. Mm. And I've always said that, that, you know, television for me and when I do stuff like that, it's not about me. It's about where I go and it's about the other people. And I want everybody to come and meet them with me because I don't know who they are. And I purposely don't research them. I purposely don't research where I'm going. Mm -hmm. Um, I sort of know a name or so, you know. um, You know, when you have to start doing things like listing Varna, and, you know, that doesn't sound actually like it's in Ireland at all. <laughs> and you're meeting a woman called Brigitta, who was part of the apparently Swedish royalty. Yeah. You know, you sort of don't think you're anywhere near Ireland. And, of course, you are when you suddenly meet her husband, Peter, who is the most amazing storyteller. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's good. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great way. I feel it's a great way to work. It's, um, and it means that I really am properly interested. And I love it. I mean, you know, what a great, great way to, to live, to do that. Well, the nice thing about it, I think, John, is that for everybody who knows you just from MasterChef, you forget, of course, that you are a chef and that you can cook. And in this program, you do quite a bit of cooking, which I really liked watching. You underplay that side of your life, I think. Whenever you have a sort of a MasterChef on MasterChef, you always treat them with enormous respect and talk about them as if they are one of the greats, and you always, in a way, slightly underplay your own skills. Yeah, I think also that's the same as before. I think that that goes back to the fact that it's not about me. Mm. And one of the great joys about MasterChef, one of the reasons I think MasterChef continues to be successful, is that it's not about us. No. We're the narrators. You know, it's like, oh, God, I wish I was like this. I I mean, it's sort of like Stephen Fry reading Harry Potter. (laughs) You know, it's you are there only as a conduit. And um, as long as we continue to remember that, then I think the show is going to continue to go for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, Thank goodness. Um, (laughs) But it's, you know, and we're very, very lucky with MasterChef. But I think that, you know, we, we started the program without a wardrobe, without any stylus, without any makeup, without anything at all. And we still exist the same way. You know, we don't have any of that, and it just means that if we rock up looking rough and we've had a you know a couple of beers the night before and we look a bit shaky, well, we've got to be a bit shaky. And <laughs> because because we know each other very well, we do know that if one of us is feeling you know even if we're feeling just a bit dodgy and a bit coldy, 
that we'll look after each other. And we, we, we're natural. We're not scripted and we love what we do. And, you know, we were talking to somebody the other day and they said, you know, what's it like? You know, when you meet people, you know them, you've met them or anything. I was like, no, we don't know who they are. No. And, it, you know, it's probably akin to that scene in um, Gladiator when Russell Crowe says, whatever comes through those doors, you know, hold on tight. <laughs> Because we have no idea. No. <laughs> we don't have no idea whether we're going to have a really good lunch or whether we're just going to have to, like, cope with whatever we're going to put in our mouth. And <laughs> and that, in a way, it's a joy because you don't. I mean, the expected always becomes the unexpected and the unexpected becomes something quite exciting. Yeah. But, um, you yeah, know, it's, it's, it's a pretty lucky life we've got. You can see that over and over again. It is the joy of watching it, of course. There's a great skill, though, in being able to put across either the enjoyment or the disgust in food. When we're simply watching you eat it, the whole idea of, of watching cookery programmes and then somebody tastes it and says, this is really lovely, and you go, I'm not there, I can't taste it, and yet we absolutely rely on you to be our conduit. Yeah, I think the thing is that um, you know when, you, when you're tasting food like that as well, you've got to remember we've got to try and get sound bites in because if you listen to us do some sort of diatribe, you're going to be falling asleep. Hmm. So it, it really is this sort of, you know, trying to be quite succinct about it. And pulling the face at the right time when the camera's in the right place. Yes. And after doing 18 years, rather than somebody saying, could you pull that face again, which I almost refused to do because mm. I'm, I'm not going to. I mean, the fact is it, that was just shit and I don't want to have that again. <laughs> or that was joyous. You know, yeah. I'm not going to tell somebody that was amazing twice as a pickup because it doesn't mean anything. Because in a way for me, MasterChef also is about the reality of what we are doing. I don't necessarily care there's a camera there. Mm. What I care about is the people who are cooking feel as though they're not on the telly show, that they are actually in, in a reality doing what they want to do and, and pursuing their dream. Yeah, And that for me has always been important because, you know, to pretend it or to, you know, make it up or to do pickups in front of them, I think it's wrong. Yeah. You know, I think it means it makes it a television program. And, you know, we're talking about real people here who have really want to change their life. They don't want to be on telly. And probably the first couple of series we sort of did as if, you know, maybe trying to find the next telly chef. But now we don't. Nobody really cares about that. No. And it's lovely to watch the anticipation. They're waiting to see what your reaction to the food is going to be and how much they trust both you and Greg. I Greg has always been one of my favourites since Veg Talk on yes. radio years ago. I love that programme. He was wonderful on it. Yeah, he uh, he is. He's a really good wordsmith. He understands mm. how people work. He understands language. He gets it, um, and you know he he knows what he's doing. And and the thing is, he has a great amount of knowledge, and that's why it does mm. work. Um, but yeah, you're right. And what what surprised me still is some people are still unsure. You know, when they've done something which is so wonderful, they're still unsure. Yeah. And I suppose that's the part of the journey, isn't it? That they they are unsure that they've when they know they've cooked it properly, they've tasted it, they've seasoned it well, it looks really cool, and they're still unsure. <laughs> yes. It's a wonderful moment, isn't it? Waiting for your reaction. And Brilliant. then the relief and the joy in their faces. It's occasionally you see people cry at the fact that they've cooked a piece of food that both of you really, really like. And it's it's beautiful. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think you know we we also get emotional, mm. and I think you can't help but get emotional. And sometimes you you taste things, and it, things are evocative. And I think this is you know what you're doing with this podcast is the fact that you know life goes on, and there's things that that mean so much to you that you don't realise. And every so often, what happens is that punctuation mark in your life suddenly explodes in front of you without you even realising it. Yeah. And I remember Greg once having a trifle, 
and tasting this trifle and literally having tears stream down his face. And I'd never seen him like it before. And he said, it just reminds me of his grandmother. And it was yeah. just sort of one of those great moments. And, and food is, is such an amazing language and it, it is a language which is completely universal. Um, you talked about Argentina and I remember going to Argentina and, and cooking empanadas with a lady on a, on a, um, we went riding horses. It's not, it's not called a farm in Argentina anyway. And <laughs> I didn't speak Spanish. She didn't speak English and we cooked together without an issue whatsoever. Yeah. We knew about stuff, about ingredients, how to do things, how to, you know, knead the dough, how to fold it. All those things are just great. And of course, when you eat it, the smile on your face is, is enough that, that there's the language already there. It's done. The words, it doesn't need words. And I, I think that's why food works so well on television mm-hmm. um, and wine doesn't. Yeah. Because it's not as, as universally understood. I don't think it punctuates people's early lives enough. Um, and let's remember that, you know, youth as and your you know favourite food as a child is probably going to be your favourite food as, a, as an adult. Yeah. So what's your favourite food? Is it childhood things? Oh, look, still my Nana's roast chicken is still, I mean, I eat <laughs> roast chicken and I love it. I mean, yeah. you know, it was one of the first things I really ever taught was learned to cook and, and I still love it. I think a roast chook's a fine thing, <laughs> you know, and it, and it can be, you know, hot and in a bit of buttered bread. It could be with some stuffing. It'd be with gravy and mashed potato. It could be in summer or winter or autumn. It could be on a beach in Portugal. It could be, you know, in the cold anywhere in Sweden. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> the fact is it seems to work anywhere. Yes, it does, and, yeah. And that's quite an amazing thing when you think about it. You know, a piece of chicken, regardless of whether it's seasoned or not seasoned or seasoned very well, is a pretty, really good thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, ironically, when when Lisa first did MasterChef years ago, um, the, one of the first things she cooked was a, this, this chicken. She had a leg and, a, and a, a thigh together and she roasted it. And it was crispy skin. It was really, really well cooked. And it was one of the sort of things I remember because we sort of, you know, talked about, me and Lisa, we talked a lot about, you know, MasterChef, and she said I just completely ignored her, um, <laughs> but which I, I, for the most part, probably did. But um, I remember she did mashed potato on this piece of chicken and Greg, like, eating this whole piece of chicken and saying, you know, you've obviously got children because you haven't seasoned your food. You didn't use no salt. But it was just this sort of crispy bit of chicken with moist flesh inside. And then there's something about it. It's just great. Yeah. It's a great thing. And you may have been ignoring it, but you were thinking, "I love you." I love no, I like. No, I didn't say that at all, Michael. I said I like. The, I, I like the chicken, and, and you know, and I still, and I still sit there and peel back of skin of crispy chicken and think, I probably shouldn't be eating this at my age, but mm. Jesus, good, you know, it's isn't really it good. just? Well, it would be really interesting to see the things that you pick out from your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule. Yeah. So, what have you come up with? Well, I, I've come up with my, my, my four things to go in and then one thing to definitely go out. And yeah. I think the controversial thing about going out is really interesting, actually. I thought about the going out more than I thought about the going in. Mm. Um, and, I, I it, you know, you talk about travelogues and stuff, and one of the things that I – and I know it's a sort of maybe it's a public nuisance, but I think it is something that should probably be put into a time capsule, and that is the, the plastic water bottle. Ah. Because I went to Egypt and I filmed in the Middle East and I filmed in India and the sort of the world in the, in the way in which it works is when you had something in India or in the Middle East, when you finished it, you probably threw it away because it was made of clay or it was made of something which would disintegrate or that you sort of drank from your hands or whatever. Yeah. But instead now they're being introduced by these huge conglomerates into these plastic bottles. 
And of course, the world is still that it's all right to throw it away without the knowledge or the education in what is really going on. No. And the litter and the unsightliness of these massive plastic bottles that sit throughout Egypt and um, especially throughout the desert, which was really obvious, like whole sort of causeways filled with them and the same throughout India and just left there. And um, I just think there should be some sort of responsibility by somebody to sort that out. But I decided about six or seven years ago, I would never drink out of a plastic bottle Mm. ever again. And so I carry a bottle with me all the time water comes out of a tap or it comes from the the rain and we're really gifted with it. And we are very, very fortunate to have fresh water all the time. And we just don't, I don't think we appreciate it enough. And so um, I would like to get rid of the plastic water bottle, if you don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. I'm really in agreement with you. Yes, I went to a a sort of a pop concert. I sound very old saying a pop concert, don't I? Well, there's one up the road from me. I live in North London. There's one in Ali Pali tonight. There's Uh, Happy Mondays playing tomorrow night. Happy Mondays are playing. There was a time when you went to those, and at the end of it, the floor, as everybody left, would be covered in plastic bottles. And that doesn't happen so much now. We are beginning to learn, I think. People are bringing their own water bottles, and you can, you know, reusable bottles that you use again and again and again. And it, it makes such an enormous difference. There's something about it in that, you know, waste in general amazes me. As a you know, a young kid growing up, we had a small metal bin, and I know that we had a combustion stove, so my grandmother probably burnt quite a lot of the waste, and it was probably not a good idea to be putting out in the atmosphere. But in, you know, in rural Australia in those days, I, I don't know how much that would have affected the atmosphere, probably less than the amount of coal they burned. Hmm. But there wasn't a huge amount of waste. And now I think about the size of our recycling bin and the amount of stuff that we've got that goes. And, you know, it's just, it's huge, huge. And, you know, the plastic bottle, you know, stacked full. And I I see it on the streets here in, you know, London, there's, you know, pallets and pallets of these plastic water bottles. And I think there are taps everywhere, guys. Yeah. And, And it's good water. It's not like it's not you know, clean water. Mm. You know, we, we live in a very, very fortunate world. Hats off to the Mayor of London, who I now cycle. I cycle around London quite a lot. And there's now water stations. You know, there's one just outside Victoria Park in, in Bethnal Green. Mm. And I know that's one of my stop points. And I refill my water bottle on my bicycle and then, you know, keep on going. That's pretty cool. And if you ride a bike and you ride a you know, long distance, you've always got a couple of water bottles with you. Always. Yes, it's funny. When I was a kid, if you went to a park, they always had water fountains that you could drink from. Yeah. And they disappeared, but now they've come back as water stations that you can fill a bottle from. But even at school, you know, you had these bubblers, as we used to call them, yeah. and we you know, stuck our lips on them. Well, COVID put a, a, an end to all that. <laughs> um, but even as an Aussie growing up, and, you know, I think about it with this, you know, with all the heat we've had recently. And, you know, it was hot, uh, but we didn't carry water with us everywhere we went. I remember my dad saying to me, he said, I never saw my mother drink a glass of water. Right. She only ever drank tea. <laughs> That's all she drank. She never drank water ever or coffee. She drank tea or coffee. Mm. But he said, no, I never, ever saw her drink a glass of water. No. So interesting, isn't it? You know, and I, and I and think about my nano. I think that the only water she had in the bedroom was what she put her false teeth in at the end of the night. You know, I don't don't remember drinking it, you know, ever seeing a drink water, so I don't know. No, just in case she'd had her teeth in it. Yeah, that's it. Well, yeah, you wouldn't want to touch that glass next to your bed. I mean, it was horrific. (laughs) Is it age, though, John, to sort of slightly question the idea of hydration? Somebody's saying to you all the time, well, you've got to stay hydrated. And you say, what does that mean? Mm. Because actually, I always think that if I'm thirsty, I'll get a drink. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think the, the other thing is that, is, is that what else we're putting in our body is making us, you know, hydrate or dehydrated. You know, it, it, it amazes me that apparently alcohol dehydrates you. Well, that's pretty bloody annoying, isn't it? Because yeah. you're having liquid that should be hydrating you, but it dehydrates you, which still confuses me anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, that sort of doesn't quite work out. A but, lifelong attempt to prove them wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I think we've all tried that. Yeah. Um, but my son always says it to me, oh, yeah, pups stay hydrated. There's mm. sort of that, you know, that I don't know what it was. It, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, all these things I grew up with, you know, as a kid in Australia, we never put on sunscreen as a kid because we lived on the beach and my father told me what he used to do. So my father said to me, when, when you guys were young, you didn't realise this, but I'd say to you, you've got to be back in half an hour. Uh-huh. And he said, you go out and you'd be back in half an hour and then you'd have to sit inside for a bit of time. Mm-hmm. And he said that then over the, the couple of weeks before Christmas, I made sure that you guys were acclimatised and that you guys actually had been in and out of the sun all the time. Of course, and yeah. We had no idea. No. Whereas in England, my parents went on holiday once a year for two weeks and on the first day my parents would send me out to get burnt. Nice. It, it, that state quick acclimatisation. Great, yeah. I've, I've got a friend of mine who I work with who's still, you know, her sole purpose as soon as the sun comes out is to make sure she's red as possible. <laughs> no. And I don't understand her. I don't no. get it. She's like, no, but then at least I know I'm going to get a tan. Okay. <laughs> That's my way of looking at it, I suppose. Yeah, quite, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. yeah. But I'm strongly in favour of the idea of putting into the time capsule to the thing we're going to get rid of, water bottles. Thank you very much. Good. Well Good done. Plastic water bottles. Good. Yes. Lovely. So we've got four things that you want to put in there because you treasure them from your life. Yeah. And my, my first thing of, of great treasure is a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh. So I have an original model of a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which, of course, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang came out in 1969. Mm-hmm. The movie came out in 1969. My mother died in 1970. Oh. So um, my ber- last birthday present from my mother was my Chitty Chitty Bang Bang on my fourth birthday. Uh, and I have it with me still, and I always will have it with me. And I, I just, it, it's one of those things that goes with me everywhere. And um, my cousin broke the handle, which opened up the wings, which I was very, very annoyed at, very, very upset about. And I don't know how badly I reacted, but I think I reacted really badly to it. But anyway, um, he's no longer with us, so God rest his soul. Mm. But yes, my Chili Chili Bang Bang is an amazing thing that's 1969. Mm. So it's been with me for, for 53 years coming up. And it still sits in my bedroom and I still see it and I look at it and it's my little thing for my mum, I suppose. Mm. And um, it's, you know, really important in the fact that I grew up without a mother and I don't really know what it was like to have a mother. No. If that makes sense. No, absolutely. Of four, what would you remember? My people say to me, you know, what, what's it like? Uh, I don't know. Mm. I have no idea. I don't know what it's like not to have a mum. I don't know. Is it different? Well, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what it was like. And and so, you know, for me, we, we have a very, very fortunate life. My father, my two brothers, we had a stepmother for, for a while. But, you know, we as, as four boys grew up in a world which was good fun. We bumped along really, really nicely. Um, and, I, I, you know, not that I, I sort of miss my mother, but I would have liked to have known her. Mm. Um, and actually, I'm looking at a picture of her right now. She was a very, very beautiful woman, but I didn't, I don't know her. So she's immortalised somewhere and somehow. Um, but the chili chili bang bang is is the thing. It sits there, and I got. I remember what I got, and it's funny. There's only a couple of memories of the house we lived in then. 
and I got that chitty chitty bang bang and I got a Hot Wheels set, a oh. Mattel Hot Wheels set where you put the plastic strips together with these little sort of orange things together and you had a and, and I had a ramp that went at the top and it came down. Now being four, I dare say it wasn't very big, but I think it was I thought it was about as tall as a building. And it was probably <laughs> as tall as me at that stage. Mm. And I just I loved it. I mean it was just great. And and it had a loop. So it used to come down. And if you did it really well, then it would go around the loop and come out the other side. Yeah. But yeah, that chili chili bang bang is the only thing that still still hangs around. Yeah. But it's there. Yeah. It's a great film as well, isn't it? Do you still watch it every now and again? I do. And you know, you've got to say that as a as a film, it's pretty cool and it's pretty crazy. Um, the child catches pretty sort of a bit odd yeah. and a bit weird. And some of it's a little bit, you know, crazy in what it does. It's long, isn't it? I remember going to see it at the cinema and actually that intermission that it has in it was an intermission. We all went off and got ice creams. Is that right? Yeah. 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 See, I, I mean, I obviously I, I don't remember seeing it in the cinema because it was 1969, so mm. I was, you know, just doing four. But, um, it, I mean, it, obviously, you know, it was a really, really big thing. Yeah. And it was something to do with the colour as well. There was something to do with the way in which the colour was done, which made it such a, you know, huge and monumental picture. Mm. Um, and I don't know why it's sort of one of those things. And every so often you do watch it and still, you know, the, the music is still the music. You know, it still goes on. And the fact that it is it is a slightly odd, an odd thing. And what is odd, I suppose, is the fact that the children didn't have a mother. No. No, quite. Yeah. So the, the father had the children without a mother. Wow. Which is sort of the irony of the whole thing. God, and so that's what. Yeah, yeah. So, that of course, she's an interloper, isn't she? She's the girlfriend. Yeah. And he's trying to impress her with his with his special car. <laughs> and thankfully the children like her. Wow. Did you did you see that really early on then? No, no, not really early on, but enough early on enough to know that, you know, there was there was, I don't know, whether it's that sort of message or whatever, but you know, I think you don't to, to try to travel the world and try and keep something with you all that time is um is, is an un, I think an unusual thing to have. Yeah, absolutely. Have, have it for that period of time and it's sitting there. And I remember years ago, somebody buying me one for my 30th birthday, mm. a replica. And it wasn't, it's not the original, it's not an original one, mm. but I've still got that as well. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's there. It's still, it's still around. Would it be rude to ask how your mother died? Uh, well, the, 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 the present word on it, and it's been taken many, many years because in the 1970s, it wasn't talked about. You were told just to get on with it. Um, but uh my father only recently told me that because I'd, I'd believe that she she died in hospital, mm. that she fell unwell and that she died on in hospital or in ambulance. But my father recently told me that she he died she died uh, in the bed next to him. Oh, right. He heard he woke at three o'clock in the morning and I said, "How did you wake?" He said, "Because I could hear the death rattles," um, which is pretty extraordinary for my father to say. It was their wedding anniversary. Oh. They'd been out for dinner. And came home, but um, apparently she'd had a thyroid operation, and they believed that may she may have had some sort of issue with her heart. So the diagnosis or the death certificate says cardiomyopathy, which of course is disease of the heart. Mm. But you know, we were always told it was a heart attack. Um, but she was thirty-one, mm. three boys, and and you know, never got to see any of us grow up. And um, we're still really good mates, all three of us, which is, I think, for my father's joy. Yeah. Well, well done him. What an extraordinary thing to be left with suddenly with these boys. 
Yeah, no, he's an extraordinary man. He he worked really hard at it. And he what happened was that my mother and my father had moved to Melbourne from New South Wales, so you know, good twelve hundred kilometers away from where they, they were originally living, mm. and set up a business making orange juice. And um and when my mother died, my father continued to do the business to make sure that he had enough money to make sure that we as boys grew up well. And then when we were about, I was about 11, I suppose, we moved back with my dad. Um, and then we lived in sort of, you know, suburban Melbourne and he decided that we needed more. So he bought a big house on the beach. Wow. And our house was on sand and he bought it so that we had somewhere that we as boys, us three boys could go and run and get the, you know, the, craziness out of our system and mm-hmm. sent us to a decent school and um you know we, we've turned out all right yeah i mean there was a few there was a few potholes on the way you know <laughs> a few speed bumps here and there yeah. the, odd, the odd trip up and bloody nose the odd you know busted toe but otherwise <laughs> we, we did all right yeah brilliant yeah. i've been to that sand in melbourne and that's a great place to be Oh, amazing beach, incredible beach. And um, I, I think one of the things that people, of course, do, and we were talking about Ireland, is that you only visit the beach when it's really hot. Mm. Um, but when you live there, it's a very different world. And I love that blustery coldness that comes with that. And I recently stayed down at Canberra Sands, and it's a big sandy beach. And they were talking about, you know, when the storms come. And I love that. <laughs> I love that noise. I love that, you know, the, the wind. I love the the way that the energy of that, that sort of environment works. And, yes, a beach is a great thing to go for a swim, but there's so much more to it. And it's when you really sort of swallow everything and think about nature and how incredible nature is and, you know, how vain we all are about how we're changing the world. And, yes, of course, there's heat going on. And, yes, there's certain things humans are doing. But come on, guys, there's been ice ages, there's been volcanoes, there were dinosaurs that became, you know, extinct. It'll carry on after we've gone, I think. Well, a lot, lot longer than when we're gone. And what comes up next, who knows? Mm. The thing that we found that that changed us all was was fire. And, of course, we cooked our food. But besides that, you know, let's be fair, you know, nature is amazing and you can try and control the sand and you can try and control the tides and you can try and control the wind and the rain and it's not going to make any difference whatsoever. No. All right, so we will take that beautiful little car. I'll tell you what, I'm going to fix the button. So Thank it, you very much. It goes in Thank there you. in full working order. Thank you. That's your first thing that you want to keep. So what's the second thing you want to put in there? There you are. I told you John was delightful. I'm afraid we're going to take a short break for some adverts here, but we won't be gone long. See you soon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Right, let's discover what else John Tarot will choose to preserve in his time capsule. Uh, the second thing, I suppose, is what revolutionised the way I cook. It's a, it's a mortar and pestle. Um, and I first picked it up in Thailand when I was about, uh, about 26 years old on a, one of my first journeys back to Australia and picked up a mortar and pestle and had eaten some food in Bangkok and realised that that I'd never eaten anything so absolutely amazing in all my life. I'd had a little bit of Thai food in, in Australia, but not a huge amount. I grew up as, you know, as I say, in rural Australia, and I, you know, my diet was roast chicken and mashed potato and grilled lamb chops and, mm-hmm. you know, veg. And so I sort of grew up in that world. I also never drank milk as a kid. I was, I was allergic to milk. So um, it used to do weird things to me and sort of make my esophagus sort of swell up. And so I, they, they were, I was diagnosed with asthma and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, of course, the result of that is that you become the fat wheezy one at school and, you know, all those things that go with it. Mm. And so I never drank milk as a result of not drinking milk. I didn't eat cream. Therefore, I didn't eat ice cream. I didn't really eat desserts. I didn't have anything like that that was sort of, you know, I suppose with the sweet treats, which probably the things that had a bit of excitement and flavour about them. Mm. So when I first discovered Thai food, I sort of found this incredible, amazing world of flavours and textures which just blew my mind apart. <laughs> and they were just so extraordinary. And its vibrancy and its freshness and the discovery that they didn't have refrigeration, so the food went to the market and it was sold and it was eaten on that day. It yeah. came out of the farm and the field. And it was, you know, that in itself to me was, you know, amazing. But, you know, the, the idea of Thai food filled me with joy. And that more and pestle then continued to follow me throughout my career. And I first did this morning in 1996, um, thanks to Bruce. Mm-hmm. Bruce got me a job on this morning. Well, he negotiated the deal, actually. Um <laughs> which was nice of him. And one of the things that we did on the back of that was we would do something called To Road to Thai Trek, uh, 10 six-minute films where travelling around to Thailand. We started in Singapore, went through into Bangkok, then Bangkok up to Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai, and all the way around. Um, and I had to cook through every single episode. And to do that, we didn't have a home economist with me. We had a cameraman, a sound man, and a producer. I had a tin can, which I bought from Muji, which had in a sort of barbecue kit, which also fitted my mortar and pestle, and a backpack on, which had a wok in it, <laughs> um, a chopping board, a, a jasmine chopping board, and a cleaver. Mm-hmm. And we travelled literally through all of Thailand and stopping anywhere we wanted to, and out came this mortar and pestle, this chopping board, this wok, and this cleaver, and we made food. Brilliant. So that then that mortar and pestle came with me. Then the mortar and pestle then went and it became one of the sort of the major pieces of equipment in the in the kitchens of Mezzo. And Mezzo upstairs, we had an Asian restaurant up there. So there was a, a load of stuff going on there with sort of 
you know, various things happening and it stayed and lived there. And when I moved from Metzo, I went to Bluebird. It came with me, went to Bluebird. And then when it went to Bluebird, then it came to Smith's. And when it went to Smith's, and then when I left Smith's, it came back home and it's downstairs in my kitchen and it's very well worn and it's a, and it's a lovely thing. And, you know, Morden Pestle's usually the, the, uh, the mortar is, is quite sort of rough. Mm. This is really smooth, almost like soapstone. Mm. Really, really, really smooth. And um, the pestle's broken. It's been broken in half. Somebody dropped it, but it, that's all right. It doesn't matter. I've still got it. <laughs> so it's it, it's downstairs and it sits there. And I, I use it quite a lot. There's something very, very therapeutic about using it. And as far as cuisines around the world's concerned, it, it's something which was used many years before electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, before a you know a food processor or a blender, um, whether you be making falafels in Egypt or whether you be you know using it to make pesto in Italy or whether you you know use it to make a pad prick in Thailand, um, and it's a it's a great piece of equipment. And it's whether it be for grinding herbs or fresh chilies or fresh herbs, it's a it's a lovely thing. Yeah. Does that smoothness does that mean you can get it right down to a paste? <sighs> Well, the roughness is about what, what you should use to get down to a paste because you use it like an abrasive. But what you do once you get that smooth, you use a bit of salt and ah. salt accent or pepper accent abrasive. Right. So anything like that or the seeds of something um, or that's why you use something like pine nuts in making pesto. Mm. So you've always got an abrasive working with it. But there's something about the way in which it works. If you consider that if you pull things apart generally, they come apart and then they're okay. If you try and cut them and chop them up, then you don't get the same, it doesn't last as long. So if you make pesto, for instance, in a mortar and pestle yeah. and you put it in a jar, it'll probably last about three weeks. If you chop it in a food process, it'll probably last about two days. Right. Because the oils come out naturally out of them when you pound it. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you don't pound it, if you chop it, then it, it becomes something, it tears it to bits and mm. it becomes all the water comes out of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great thing. Yeah, I hope all future competitors in MasterChef are listening to this and recognising the fact that you're giving them a clue as to the way they should prepare their food. Well, the, the, there was one guy on our, there's been a number of Thai people on our, and, and, you know, this year we had Pookie, but before that we had a Nauman who was on with us, who was Thai. Hmm. And it, he used a mortar and pestle for everything. Yeah. And, you know, every so often somebody would say to him, why don't you do food pestle? No way. He said, it just doesn't taste the same. <laughs> it doesn't work. And this is what I do. And, you know, he, he would make his own coconut milk. He'd do all these things as... I suppose you would probably want to do. I mean, you're not going to make your own olive oil, but, you know, in that the way in which we sort of cook, doing those things which are therapeutic but just take that bit of extra time, and there's a reason for it. And when you use some water and pestle to make a curry paste, as I say, it lasts a really long time. Yeah. Um, it's hard work, but it lasts a really long time. So when did you fall in love with cooking then? Because you started really early. You went to catering college how old were you when you went there well you in australia what you do is you don't do catering college like you do here and my father the other day it was really funny a great conversation with him in australia you do an apprenticeship mm. so what you do is the majority was practical you go to work and you start work and i started work at 17 you start work and then what you do is um you go to college um one day a week or mm. you go to do six weeks block release right so what i did was i did two lots of three weeks block release so you go to three weeks of college and then but you went you went to work you know if you're a carpenter you'd go and work with a carpenter if you're an electrician you go and work the electrician if you're a chef you go and work with the chef Mm. and i was talking to my dad about this and saying you know people go to college you went 
How are you going to bloody learn to cook in a bloody classroom, mate? It's just stupid. And he's absolutely right, because how do you bloody learn to cook in a bloody classroom? It doesn't make any sense at all. Because you don't get the energy, you don't get the mistakes, you don't get the consistency, you don't understand the pressure, mm. you don't get any of what's going on. In the same way, you know, if you're an electrician, what happens when you're in a house and actually then you find a, you know something completely different than you've ever seen in college? What do you do then? So you do an apprenticeship and it lasts four years in Australia. Um, and those four years are regulated very, very strictly by the government. And what happens is you are paid, everybody in Australia is paid the same amount of money on your first year, on your second year, your third year, and your fourth year. Mm. And you have to do those four years then to get your piece of paper, your ticket, and then you're allowed to work anywhere you want to work. Mm. And ironically now, if you want to work in somewhere like Germany or Switzerland, you have to have that ticket. Right. So I can go and work there, <laughs> whereas there's certain people in this country who can't. No. And I like the fact that I was trained properly. I was classically trained. You know, I was, I was trained by French and German and Swiss. Um, I learned in Italian restaurants. I learned in French restaurants. I, learned, I had a British chef. I had a couple of Australians here and there. I, you know, I did all sorts of things. Mm. But that, that great foundation really held me in great stead. But the reality of it, when I fall in love with food, I don't think I ever really knew I fell in love with food. As I say, my grandmother's roast chicken was, was really important to me. I love it. Mm. But I think more and more, my um, my uncle's mother had come from uh, the Eastern Bloc after the war in the 1950s. Their surname was Chashinsky. And I remember going into her house and the smell, and I couldn't understand asking about this smell. And she taught me to make stuffed cabbage leaves. She taught me to make um, stuffed peppers. Uh, she used sorrel in a lot of the cooking, which was unheard of in Australia. Uh, we made pilminia and piroshki together, which were just, you know, these amazing little dumplings, some just filled with potato and mushrooms and mm. some filled with meat. But all these sort of amazing things. And I suppose as I sort of travelled the world, these, these little bits of food, always punctuated my life. Yeah. And I, I've always sort of, you know, indulged in that, you know, would that be a great meat pie in a bakery in, 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 a, in a highway in Australia, which I think is a fine, fine thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think wrapped in pastry, I think is a fine thing to my wife's amusement. <laughs> she says, yeah, John, anything, anything in pastry, mate, and you're happy. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, there's little things along the way and I suppose everything, Along the way, I could probably now say, yeah, I ate that there. I ate that there. I know what I ate there. I know what I had there. Mm. You know, and, and when people say to me, you know, where'd you go to when you're on the holidays? Well, it's probably going to be, you know, a restaurant or a market or something like that. You know, it, it's it's got to do with food somewhere, somehow. Yes. It's funny you should talk about that because I remember... I've forgotten the name of the dish now. Ridiculous. See, now that's why I'd be useless on your program. It's when you take apples and you caramelise it and then you turn it up the other side. Tartatin. A tartatin, which you made. Yes. There was a competition when we were on that holiday. And yeah. I think Bruce said, I'm going to make tartatin. You said you don't know how to make tartatin. Yeah, well, it was me, Bruce, and, and Nick Mason. Nick Mason, yeah. Who became a very good friend and, and actually invested in my business many years later. Oh, brilliant. But yeah, everybody was talking about, you know, and they, that, that whole thing of tap to time. But I made foie gras serene and all sorts of stuff that, that holiday. Mm. And we made proper panzanella. Mm. And, you know, Bruce was a bloody good cook. Sarah, an, an amazing cook. And Sarah and I ended up writing a, a, a book together. We wrote the Metsu Cookbook in, in 1995, 1996. So, you know, I remember, as you say, you know, those sort of places like that, I know. You know, I remember that kitchen and the, the panzanella and how everybody sat around that big table going, 
wow. <laughs> and it was some chopped tomatoes and some onions and cucumber and some bread. And nobody could understand that, you know, to get that flavor, you had to soak the bread in the vinegar with some olive oil and lots and lots of salt and pepper. And that once that happened, then you got the salad. And it was all this sort of great revelation that went on. It was, it was a great, it was a great time. It was, yeah. That was the holiday where I persuaded all the children that uh, money trees really did exist. Brilliant. I put all the little bits of change into all the oak trees in the woods outside the chateau. Fantastic. And uh, they discovered them and went, we found money trees. Right. It was a great idea, but a number of parents went, what are you doing? You've destroyed all the effort I've made to try and teach my children that you can't have things because money is important. They now think they grow on trees, you idiot. (laughs) Well, for some of those people, money did grow on trees. But anyway. <laughs> it did indeed. So we shall um, take the mortar and pestle and put it into the time capsule for you. Thank you. That's lovely. Let's move on. What's next? Um, uh, next would be this year's poppy seeds. I like my garden. I like my garden a lot. I think gardens are a great thing. They're very therapeutic. Um, and poppies, I've always, I don't know why, I've always loved them. Whatever side, whatever they are, big, small, whatever. And I remember my uncle who was involved with the agricultural department in New South Wales and him going to my Auntie Mary's house and ripping these poppies out of her garden. And I was like, what are you doing? Uh, Because they're opium poppies and they'd been made illegal in Australia. Right. Um, But since then, I've always had, every garden I've ever had, I've always planted poppies. And um, there's something amazing about them in the fact that they are this sort of fragile, crepe paper-looking thing that actually if it rains, they still somehow hold up. And it's, I suppose, it's my nod to how spectacular nature really is. It's a, it's a plant that disappears and, you know, comes back up again. I know it has huge significance for a lot of people, but that's not necessarily why I feel that way at all. And, I, you know, I have seen great fields in England which have just been completely covered in sort of red poppy, tiny, tiny little poppies. Mm. And I remember Casper, my son, my second son being born, and the day he was born, and it was May, it had been a very, very hot year, start to a very, very hot year. And the day he was born, this amazing orange poppy came out in our back garden huh. and just like, burst open. And, it's, and it literally did, and maybe that's why they call it a poppy, because it just popped and this sort of this sort of shell opened up on the outside of it. This little sort of almost like eyelids dropped off it and then this sort of incredible orange crepe paper thing just sat there and wavered in the wind. And it was an incredible, incredible, you know, amount. And there was loads of them, loads and loads of them that year. Um, so, yeah, they sort of, they sit there. And I, and I try every year to try and keep the seeds and scatter them around in the hope that they might spread. Mm. I don't know. I think it's an extraordinary flower. Mm. You know, it's one of those things that as a, as a seed, you know, we probably know the flavour on the bread rolls and, and you know, they, they eat really nicely. But as far as a, a, a thing that you could put in a pot and you can grow anywhere in the world and they grow quite easily... I think they're an amazing thing and they're beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So the other great thing about a poppy seed, as you, you probably know, is that if you put it somewhere and you seal it properly, it can last years and years and years. Yeah. And then you can just go and plant it and off it goes. It's done. Extraordinary things, aren't they? I've got a giant poppy that grows in my garden and it does self-seed, which is brilliant. And the flower heads are huge, but it comes from those tiny, tiny little black seeds. It's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think nature's a weird thing like that. I mean, I when you say it like that, I think there's this tiny, tiny little seed. Mm. And I've got, I'm looking out my window at the moment at some um, flowering peas. Sweet peas. Thank you, sweet peas. And they're pink. And they, uh, again, the same sort of thing is my neighbour said to me, um, take these. These are like, and there were two pods like this big. 
and I just crumble them and put them in the garden. And now they, they are, oh, they must be three metres high with pink <laughs> flowers on the end of them. Yeah. And I think that, that you know, is this goes back to the whole nature thing, is that this tiny, tiny thing with a little bit of water and maybe the, you know, the, the nutrients of soil and sunshine can create so much growth. Mm. And it can become so big, you know, and it's so enormous. And that, the fact that, you know, I mow my lawn every single week and it continues to come back and <laughs> I, you know, trim the bush and I've got these beech trees that have sort of made a screen and they all sort of went up a number of years ago and everybody looked at them and go, they're a bit weird. And now, of course, there's this massive screen and they're beautiful. Mm. The fact that this continues to grow, they drop their leaves, they go really quiet during winter and then suddenly they come back again. Yeah. And, and the sound of them and, you know, all the things that go with it, the smell of a flower, you know, the way in which it grows, and you don't have to do very much to it. And I think that gardens are, a, you know, are a pretty special thing. You can nurture them, I think. You can probably train it a little bit, but I don't know how much you can completely control it. And I quite like that. As a, as a control freak, I quite like the fact that I can't completely control it. <laughs> no. And I like the concern for the rest of the world, actually, in the sense that when you plant a tree – the chances of you seeing it at full maturity are, are not great. No. And every so often where we live, there's quite a few squirrels around and, and, you know, there's the odd oak tree suddenly pops up, you know, starts to come up, you know, through mm. the ground. And again, this is this whole thing about, you know, whether it be a chestnut tree or whether it be an oak tree and the, the fact there's this horse chestnut, which is quite big, really. Yeah. However, when you look at the size of a tree <laughs> that comes from this thing, which is smaller than the nail of your thumb. Yeah. It's amazing. Isn't it? You know, I think poppies and peonies are two of the most beautiful, beautiful flowers. And they are, you know, they sort of, I think, represent everything which is about nature and the fact that it's very, very sturdy. It does come back every year. It's pretty reliable. But there's something very, very beautiful about it. And what I love about the poppy is that its sole purpose is procreation. Mm. Its sole purpose is to stay alive. Its sole purpose is that what it does is if it itself dies, it knows that a bird will pick it up and poo it out somewhere else and it'll live again. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and the nasturtium, I'd put in a word for that. The one, oh, good. The flower that you can eat. Absolutely. Yeah, I like it. Well, I think you can eat most things, actually. Tulips you can eat, poppies you can eat. Um, right. Yeah, nasturtiums are good. Nasturtium leaves are really good. I, I can always get to a certain point with the nasturtium and then they sort of disappear on me. I don't know what it is. They <laughs> they start off looking fairly prolific and then they disappear. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's me. <laughs> All right. Okay, so poppies, your poppy seed into the time capsule. Brilliant. Thank you. Right. So that's three we've had. We've got one more. Yeah. Uno. The game Uno. The game Uno. <laughs> it either brings great joy or great frustration, <laughs> but it's the brilliant level for my family. And as you know, I have a blended family and, you know, various trips along the way of families and, you know, we've happened and not happened and, you know, separations and all sorts of things. And some have been acrimonious, but Uno somehow or other has been a constant. And regardless of where you go in the world or whatever goes on or whether it be at home on a stormy night or whether it be on holidays in the sunshine, whether it be, you know, a grandparent or whether it be a six-year-old child or whether it be whatever it might be, mm. Uno, somewhere or other, comes out and it just calms the whole world. Everyone gets really excited about it. <laughs> and even now, you know, as my children get older, there's Uno comes out and everybody just has a bit of a laugh and a bit of a giggle. <laughs> um, and everybody plays it and everybody has their own way of playing it. There's a little bit of competition that goes with it. Um, I remember something that was many, many years ago, there was this sort of photo of how to destroy your family in one card. And it was the, 
the card that was pick up four, you know, the terrible <laughs> one. Oh, there's something about pick up four. You're like, no, <laughs> you know, and whoever invented it, it's the cleverest game in the world. It's colourful, as I say, it's fun, it's transportable, you chuck it in your bag. And, I, you know, I think about the amount of countries it's been to, the amount of beaches it's been to. I mean, I've had a few packs, I think, along the way. Yeah. You know, aeroplanes. Uh, and as I say, when the shit goes up and, you know, when it rains and you're in the middle of holiday somewhere and everybody's really pissed about it and ice cream doesn't satisfy the grumbles, mm-hmm. Uno works. Yes. Everyone sits down and it just calms everybody down. It's great. And, and, you know, everybody can understand the rules. Yeah. It works. You know, it's great. And what I think what really probably gets on my goat the most about it, you know, is when somebody says, do you know that there's a certain rule? It's like, oh, piss off. Dude. You know what? <laughs> piss off. Right? <laughs> it's, you know, guys. It's not like, oh, do you know? No, 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 no. I don't care about that. Just, just play the game. You know what? If it says reverse, you go the other way. If it says miss a go, you miss a go. Yeah. If you've got to pick up a card, you've got to pick up a card. Simple, guys. <laughs> You've got to read the instructions, but piss off. Just piss off, right? <laughs> so I think Uno's Uno for everybody should be in there. It's, you know, it's a real absolute beauty. And I think that, you know what, in 500 years' time, I think people would still be able to understand it. And they'd still be able to play it. Whoever worked it out, incredible. I remember listening recently to um to an interview with a woman who invented Jenga. Invented Jenga. Yeah, of course. You, yeah. you, you don't think about those things being invented. Yeah, she invented it. What it was, though, was she she, she invented it. Then her husband was a, a forestry man, and he did the whole thing sustainably. So he only made Jenga, which was sustainable. Wow. So thank you, whoever made Uno. Mm. But, you know, Uno's definitely going to be there in the, in the time capsule. Brilliant. What a fantastic time, Capsule. John, it's been absolutely gorgeous to speak to you. Uh, I can't wait to watch the rest of the series. I think your trip around Ireland is a joy. Well, lovely to see you again. It's lovely, lovely to, to see, see you again 25 years later. Amazing, isn't it? Thank you very, very much indeed. And um, let's hope somebody finds a time capsule. <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, John Tarode. Do check out John's latest TV series, John Tarode's Island, available on the Food Network UK and Discovery Plus, or on sky.com on the internet. It's a lovely series and will make you rush to the pub for a pint of Guinness, which is almost as if this podcast is becoming themed, as our next episode features the Irish comedian Jason Byrne, whose dad worked all his life as a cooper in the Guinness factory in Dublin, which I'm sure John was very grateful for. Right, I bet you're thirsty now, so I'll not keep you long. This cast-off production was made for Acast, and we are always grateful if you subscribe to it or take the time to rate it and maybe leave a small review. You can follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and you can listen to the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify. Our producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to watch John's TV show. I hope it doesn't spoil my diet. You see, I'm on a special diet, which means I only eat things with the word special in their name, like, you know, special K or special fried rice. And, of course, Marks and Spencer double fudge chocolate cake with extra double cream. Special offer. Bye. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.